It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits, not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world, with its own needs. Loving to your own head, beat it up, and I've seen got no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, with the system of the gang, and the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury, beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom. And Bloom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a time of temerity in an intemperate world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 posts, videos, podcasts, all sorts of stuff on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton having my first cup of coffee in the morning. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. She's a hostess with the mostess and together we are the watchers on the wall and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident? With a wily coyote? Well, our attorney says, don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. And listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge our audience... To seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. Don't listen to a thing we say. <laughs> or at least admit to listening to a thing we say. <laughs> but if you do listen, just keep your family safe in times of trouble. Hey, do you have a pearl of wisdom that you can cast before us, swine? Well, share it with the rest of the class. You know, we admit it. We learn as much from you as you do from us. So send us a note. It is easy. And here's Nurse Amy to tell you how. Absolutely. You can contact us by email at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our awesome group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. And don't forget our YouTube channel, which has... Over 130 videos. So wow. Far, so far, I'm working on them. And that is found at DR Bones Nurse Amy. And we have a video cast twice a month at AroundTheCabin.com. It's the first and third Wednesday of every month at 7 p.m. 
Eastern Standard Time. And our newest project is American Survival Radio. It's a show that discusses all the issues that affect, um, well, American survival, right? <laughs> I yeah. think that's the best way to describe that it. That is the best way to describe it. I think you will enjoy it. By the way, thanks to all the great networks that replay our shows, the Prepper Broadcasting Network, the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Survival Central. Shake and Wake. Shake and Wake, and all the other great networks that replay our show, The Survival Medicine Hour. You can also replay our show, American Survival Radio, as well. Hey, we are still on our travels throughout this great, beautiful country, and we are uh, talking with, we are talking at all sorts of different events. We've been in Western North Carolina two weeks ago. We were in Richmond, Virginia last week. This week, we're in beautiful Irving, Texas. Don't mess with Texas. That's all I got to say. And we are at the Fortress of Solitude at an undisclosed location that will not be revealed on this show. And Superman, indeed, is here. The Superman of survival, the Prince of preparedness, the Dean of the Dynasty of Ducks. I'd say Duck Dynasty, but that's probably trademark. But I am here in the midst of a bunch of ducks, a few geese, and one crazy old bird. <laughs> and that crazy old bird is Jack Spierko, the granddaddy of the Preparedness Podcast, also known as the Survival Podcast, episode number 1700 and something, and 1787. And we are going to talk with Jack Spierko, who's going to give us some information about what he thinks about the world today. And we're going to talk about a few, a few topics during our podcast. So this is a real treat, guys. So sit back and listen to Jack Spierko spout off incoherently for the next 40 minutes. All right, folks, and with that, it's uh, great to have my good buddy, old man Doc Bones, in the studio with us. And uh, this is one of the rare actual, you know, where I have a co-host that's actually with me, not remote on Skype. So we shouldn't have any jumps and jitters and things like that. But uh, I don't know. He uh, he might do something crazy while he's here. No, that'd be your wife, wouldn't it? My lovely <laughs> wife. She is here also, but she's out tending to the ducks and just looking around and breathing the air and... Uh, you know, and, and minding putting the, the zap on her mind, as they said in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, we, uh, we we usually do a listener feedback show today, and actually that's pretty much what we're going to be doing anyway, because most of this material is stuff that you guys have sent me within the last two weeks, asking me questions. Um, I think one or two I robbed from things that were for Bones on Expert Counsel, but most of it was actually for me, and some of it I was like, I need to spin this in expert counsel anyway. Then, you know what? All of a sudden, these two crazy people show up at my house. It's Monday. It's a feedback show. I've got all this great material. I figure, why not invite Doc on to talk about this stuff? So, Doc, the uh, the first question that came in from a listener recently, and, and my answer to this up until I talked to you last night has been, don't worry about it, uh, is the Zika virus. And what they're saying is, this, is all this stuff on TV hype? And, of course, some of it must be. But 
is there really anything to be concerned about Zika at all, or is this like Ebola 2.0, or is it even worse than that? Is it like the you know swine flu that was going to kill us all and did nothing? <laughs> well, as you know, a lot of these a lot of these pandemic warnings wind up turning out to be less than what you would expect. And that actually doesn't surprise me. You know, the CDC, the World Health Organization, oftentimes has to tell you that it's going to be a little worse than they might actually think because people don't pay attention and don't care about anything unless they think that there's actually a possible threat to them. So, you know, this is, I think, a purposeful, slightly more alert than what it possibly deserves. So you're saying there's a concern, but they're, they're going a little beyond how serious because they need to do that to get us to pay attention at all. So they're getting into a boy cried right. wolf mode. Right. But the CDC has learned a lesson because they actually didn't do that as much when Ebola came around and those nurses in Texas wound up getting uh, infected. They weren't ready. Mm -hmm. And so now they are overcompensating a little bit. Now, but let me tell you about Zika virus. Zika virus, by the way, I am, shameless plug, the only doctor to have written a book about Zika virus. It is called the Zika virus handbook. A doctor tells you all you need to know about the pandemic. Not only am I a doctor and not only am I interested in saving you from terrible epidemics, but I am also an obstetrician. Holy mackerel, what does Zika virus do? Zika virus can cause viral defects uh, in the brain case or the cranium of Uh, fetuses and fetuses wind up have, getting born with small heads, what used to be called very nastily pinheads, and wind up having well an associated an associatively appropriately sized brain for their brain case. That leads to severe defects. Something that countries that don't have two nickels to rub together, like Brazil, definitely don't need to have to care for thousands of infants that are going to be very severely damaged adults. So for that reason alone, that might be worth it. But there's, for me, some concern about Zika virus simply because it's not acting like Zika virus has acted for the last 60 years, which is basically a mild infection that 80% of the people don't even have symptoms, and that's about it. It started off in Africa, went to Asia, went then to French Polynesia, and now has across the pond and is in South America, not only South America, but the Caribbean. And indeed, there have been on U.S. territory, if we include Puerto Rico, there have been about 700 cases mm -hmm. and one and one death, which is funny because Zika really doesn't doesn't cause death in most cases. It causes fetal abnormalities like microcephaly, like I just mentioned, but it also causes in adults nerve cell disease, the Zika virus in laboratory studies, actually kills nerve cells, and that is what's going on. It causes Guillain-Barre and a lot of other multiple sclerosis-looking diseases. Okay, so that does sound like something to be concerned. How much of it has actually been evidence in the United States? I, I did hear, you said one person died. I heard a person died in Florida. Is that right? No, died in Puerto Rico. Oh, Puerto Rico. Okay. But... Let me tell you about the mosquito that transmits the virus. The mosquito is Aedes aegypti, comes from Egypt, and the word Aedes in Greek means unpleasant. And boy, <laughs> I'll say, 
Well, the truth of the matter is, is that the Aedes mosquito has expanded its range in the United States. Last survey was in 12 states, including Texas, mm -hmm. including Florida, both of our home states. And actually, it is now found in 30 states of the Union. It overwinters in places like Washington, D.C., New York City. New York City, as a matter of fact, after Florida and Texas has the third largest number of Zika cases that have presented to to hospitals. But so far, most of it, so no need to panic, most of it has come from people that have gone to Central America and South America. So, ladies and gentlemen, for God's sake, don't go there unless you really absolutely have to. And by the way, with the Olympics coming, let me ask, let me Jack, let me ask you a question. Okay. All right. Um, let's say that there's an, a, a, an event and half a million people from 180 countries are going to go to that event. Would you put that event in the epicenter of a, of a, what appears to be a major epidemic? I, I certainly would not. I think the decision for Brazil for the Olympics was made long before this concern about uh, Zika virus, though. I mean, I think that decision goes back four Olympics now, that that's like how far out they are. So w the problem they would have now is Brazil has spent like a gajillion dollars, and Brazil's not exactly heavy with cash, uh, to provide all these facilities and like clean the cesspool of their water up so the swimmers can swim without dying and whatever else. And now you're going <laughs> to say like, okay, we can't do it there. Now I can see a good reason to say that, but I don't think that the, uh, the, you know, the International Olympic Committee has the the political stones to make that change. The Olympic so. International Olympic Committee, the senior member of the International Olympic Committee, calls Zika a manufactured crisis and that there's absolutely no problem. Yet Zika cases have appeared in China, have appeared in Russia, places like that, from people that have traveled from the epidemic zone. And interestingly enough, Rio de Janeiro, <laughs> where everything's happening, is... The epicenter. Well, I, I don't know this. if you've been to Rio. I've been to Rio, and they do have mosquitoes there. A few yeah, of them. There's, there's like there's like 15 they, right per cubic inch of yeah, your body. Of your body, right? Yeah, right. I yes. mean, there's a lot of them there, and they they are those little striped bastards. Mm -hmm. You know, they they really are yes. the the ones we're the talking right ones, about. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can see that being a problem. So now on top of that, the we had another question from a listener that fits right into what you just said. So they said it's a manufactured crisis. There's been some rumblings that maybe that could be the case, but not in the way maybe he meant it, that there may be, in fact, this epicenter in South America, which is not where this has traditionally been a big problem, because of contaminated or infected vaccines that were used in that area. Do you know if there's any truth to that? I, I want to tell you that about vaccines that we assume just in general, that all vaccines are exactly the same. We assume that every lot of vaccine is as effective as every other lot of vaccine. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners haven't even ever, ever thought of that, whether a particular lot is better than another of a vaccine. So even if a vaccine works, which that isn't always the case, the flu vaccine, for example, in 2014 had exactly a 19% effectiveness rate in preventing influenza in people, so not all vaccines are uh, perfect. Whenever I say things like that, I lose followers now. And, but now, what I'm going to tell you in this case is something that you might not believe. You'll believe in even less. The truth of the matter is, is that all vaccines aren't 
create equal. The ones that wind up in third world countries, believe me, if you probably saw the conditions in which they're transported and conditions in which they're handled, it wouldn't surprise me if these vaccines are contaminated. Heck, they could be contaminated with the virus itself. So let's kind of painting this in the redneck version. What you're basically saying is what we do first is we take our factory seconds and we offload those to third, to third world, world right. countries. Right. And then those third world countries are less equipped to provide the right transport, storage, and care. So we've already taken a second-rate product, put into a second-rate, maybe a third-rate situation, mm -hmm. and that even if they weren't maybe contaminated in our production facilities, by the time they get there, they can become contaminated. To give, with, you, a, to give you a quality control comparison, compare the number of, of cases of Ebola in West Africa, even among people that wind, wound up either in hospitals or who worked in hospitals, compare it with in the United States. Mm -hmm. And then you get a little idea of the quality control in terms of infection pre prevention mm -hmm. and isolation and and the uh, work that they do with medicines and vaccines and things like that, compare it through countries. And you see that Brazil is absolutely unprepared to deal with this. And the people in Brazil, by the way, don't even talk. I had one of my employees went to Brazil recently. They don't even talk about the Zika virus. They sit outside in the heat, and he himself got bitten at least a half a dozen times. You know, so we actually had to put him in in quarantine. quarantine? We, we wrapped <laughs> we wrapped him in duct tape against the wall for six days until the virus. Uh, <laughs> but so, we do that to him at half, most of the time, anyhow. You know, he, <laughs> yeah, wasn't the first time. So I mean. I guess I feel like the biggest threat of this is to women that are pregnant, right? That, that, that seems like the biggest threat to me right now, except you said it's not acting in all cases like it usually did. Like there's more symptoms and, and problems for people that are adults that are infected. Is there any reason in your mind as to why that's the case? I believe, well... It actually mutated at, in the virus right in the very beginning i personally said that i believe that the mu the zika virus has mutated it is not exactly the same virus i actually i i'm privy and i wind up being called in on all of the alerts for physicians in the state of florida which is going to be considered to be a hotbed they think of some some locally transmitted uh infections uh, over the summer and Uh, I asked them, you know, hey, this sounds like a virus has mutated. It's not acting exactly like it did in Africa and Asia. You know, there were a few cases in French Polynesia. Now there are a bunch of cases of, of fetal issues in South America. And you know, they, they said, oh, you know what? That might be the case. Now, I can't believe that these people that are in charge of what's going on actually sort of, it sounded to me a little bit as if, This was like a novel idea. It should have been the first thing in their minds. So, okay, my, my, my foil hat now goes on just a little bit and says, if it's possible that vaccines were contaminated with Zika virus, and we take a vaccine, which is this cocktail of, of immune-spurring you know, immune, uh, uh, things that are things that are designed to trigger the immune system, and you take those two things, the Zika virus and this, you know, Uh, vaccine cocktail and you put them together, could that cause the vaccine itself to mutate? Well, yeah. Could it be a catalyst, a trigger? None of this stuff 
would surprise me. Now, of course, you know, a live, not saying a live, I'm just saying that's a live, you know, the, a live vaccine would probably be more likely to do that than a dead vaccine. So it depends on how the how the how the vaccine is prepared. So okay. that particular vaccine that they give to pregnant ladies, you know, the MMR and some of the other ones that they do that that they gave. By the way, the timing on that is actually also. You know, a suspicious, little suspicious, yeah. a little suspicious for that country, not all countries, but for, for that, that country. country where it all is exploding yeah. right now. Interesting. So kind of shifting gears a little bit because we can only be we only know so much about Zika right now. If you want to learn more, they should get your book. Absolutely. They should get my book. <laughs> but the Zika virus handbook on Amazon dot com. We, we did have another <laughs> question uh, kind of in this vein, mm -hmm. but it wasn't really about Zika. It was overall. What are some good items uh, for a pandemic hit? What are some good considerations for basic pandemic preparedness? Because I think you would agree, like me, that it doesn't really matter which disease eventually causes a serious, actual, blow-the-alarm global pandemic. In the end, we're going to deal with many of the same common situations. Uh, if it's some mutated Zika, if it's that whatever that stuff is you get from bats, what is it called, mint or something like that? Uh, oh, there, there are a bunch of stuff. Ebola was from bats, right? Yeah. So I mean, there's, there's, but there's something called mint that if people, it's only in Southeast Asia now, and it's they figured out these like these they were storing their fruit juice to ferment it in the trees, and the bats mm -hmm. were drinking it, and that's why yeah. they were getting. But if you get that. You're freaking dead. There's, you're done. Right. So if there's that's, ever, why, that's why I never store my fruit juice in trees. And let batch drink out of it, <laughs> right. right? I mean, so, but what I'm saying is there's all types of things. There's even people that question whether or not bubonic plague in the Black Death was actually the bubonic plague and what the hell that might be if it ever came back. So someday we could deal with this. So what is the basic preparedness mindset and kit items to deal with pandemics? Like, You know, this person said they already have the respirator masks and stuff like that. But all right, well, that hey, you know what? That's a good start. You're ahead, and and listener, you are ahead of 99% of the people. If you have one mask, you're 99% ahead of the rest of the of the folks. Now, the bottom line with any kind of pandemic preparedness plan is you have to put together a good survival sick room. So therefore, I want you to first off, I don't want you to Equip it and have it ready to go tomorrow. I don't want to go into your house and see an ICU bed and and things like that yeah, in your kids' room. You know, and your we kids, have a kids hangover sleeping, bed. Yeah. We have a hangover, hangover. Uh, bed upstairs, but we don't have. Yes, a it was room. great. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right, but the bottom line is you have to put together and plan out, or you have to plan out a good sick room. Basically, take a room at one side of the house, away from common areas. You want a room that you can put the sick people so they will be separate from the healthy people and but still have the best chance to recover. Now, the, this kind of room needs to be very lightly furnished. You don't want carpeting. You don't want fabric uh, uh, covered sofas and chairs and things like that. You want things to be you know, hardwood floors. You want Very basic counter space type material. You want a place to put a basin, preferably outside. You want to have the room has to be able to be closed. Now, if it, if it doesn't have a door, you need to put some plastic sheeting to separate out, separate uh, 
people out. That's important. Speaking of plastic sheeting, that's an item that you might want to have because if you have people with infectious disease, you really don't want them spending a lot of time on your bedding without some barrier. And so plastic sheeting is going to be very important. Simple things like bleach that you're going to have to disinfect your countertops. Simple things like dealing with people's uh, waste, uh, dedicating utensils, dedicating bedding to people. And let's put it this way, even something as simple as a whistle. You give, you give your patients a whistle. If these people are on one side of your house and you may not know when they need you. And so you have to have, you have to have a whistle, some kind of noise maker. Signaling so people, mechanism. So, right. But of course, don't forget that, you know, that room or that tent, or that hospital tent needs to have ventilation and needs to have light. All right, so let's definitely talk more about what we need to do to be prepared. But I had another really coincidental question coming from a listener uh, about a week ago um, that basically said they're always hearing the words pandemic and epidemic used, you know, back and forth, almost like the same thing. And they wanted to know what the actual difference, you know, where's the cutoff line. And I think if you're the one sick, it doesn't really matter. And if you're the one affected, it doesn't really matter. But from a global standpoint, it does matter. So could you kind of talk about that a bit? Yeah, there are three words that you really need to know when it comes to understanding community-wide infectious disease outbreaks. And that is endemic, the word endemic, which is not epidemic or pandemic, and, of course, epidemic and pandemic. An endemic disease is a disease that's there all the time. For example, there are countries in this world, especially around equatorial regions, that have malaria. Mm. All the time. There's no such thing as a malaria epidemic, really. It's just there's malaria there. Right. It is endemic, therefore. Joe got malaria Mm. in Ecuador. Well, no crap, right? That's just how it works. That's a place where it happens. Now, an epidemic is a rapid, widespread, community-wide outbreak of a disease that's not there ordinarily. And so the Ebola epidemic would be a... A typical example, West Africa was not where most of the Ebola epidemics were occurring. It was occurring in Central Africa, uh, maybe even Eastern Africa, like Uganda, places like that. However, this is a new disease that people, I guess, I think were undercooking bats, that they were cooking over 55-gallon drums, and they ate, ate them. They're the natural reservoir for that particular disease in that area, and sure enough, they want, uh, humans wound up getting the infection, but it was a new infection for humans in that area. Mm. So that was an epidemic. And it didn't become a pandemic because it, it, even though there were some isolated cases in other countries, it didn't, right. it didn't migrate across to other, right. it didn't become global. Exactly. Matter of fact, there is, the World Health Organization has specific phases that indicate whether something is becoming an epidemic or a pandemic. I'm going to go real quick over it. Phase one, virus found in animals, not in humans. Phase two, disease is proven to be infecting humans. Phase three, small clusters of disease occur in humans but don't affect entire communities. We can say that Zika is doing is at that phase right now. There okay. are a few hundred cases that have occurred in, U, in U.S. citizens, at least that uh, with regards to the U.S. So we're in phase three for Zika in the U.S. Uh, phase four, it affects com- entire communities qualifies as a pande- as an epidemic, the risk of a pandemic is unlikely. Now, you might think that would apply to Brazil, but that doesn't because there are also Zika cases that are occurring in communities in Asia and French Polynesia 
already. So, so it's further along than that. Now, Ebola hit phase five. That was the spread of the disease between humans in more than one country, but not big giant communities affected in in a bunch of different countries, but some bordering countries. Okay. Yeah. So that was phase five. That was Ebola. That was still an epidemic, but a full blown pandemic. You have community wide outbreaks in at least different countries in different regions. And so Zika virus absolutely manages that. There have been community wide outbreaks in French Polynesia, in uh, Africa, in Asia, uh, Malaysia, for example, and also in now Central America, Puerto Rico, number a number of places. So that's your that's the difference. So on Zika, uh, this is an interesting. I just kind of thought of like, so there's certain diseases that if you get them, you develop a significant immunity to them, and then there's other diseases you get them and you develop no immunity. Malaria, a person can get malaria multiple times. Mm. Zika. Once a person has Zika, do they tend to ever get Zika again? No, they are thought to be immune. To it, but the truth of the matter is, is that how much do we really know about it? We're not really sure, okay. but we're hoping we're hoping that there's going to be significant immunity in people that have wound up having Zika. The, the issue is, is that the kids, for example, the fetus, fetus, newborns that wind up with the the abnormalities, well, there's not too much that you can. You can do for them once they're born with an abnormality, yeah, right? yeah. or, or there, even in late pregnancy. There's surgery. birth defects that are somewhat easily remedied, remedied mm -hmm. by modern surgical techniques. Having a head that's too small is not one of them. We can't just that's right. make it bigger. And at that point, the brain's already developed too small in the first place. So my other concern, I guess, would be, okay, they have developed immunity, but if this is a new strain of mutation, right, And you're telling me that it has neurological consequences. For adults. Right. It may be that a person that looks like they've recovered just fine might have long-term neurological implications. There are certain diseases that come back as different diseases later in life. For instance, shingles and chickenpox, which is very much a neural-related issue when it comes back as shingles, where it's not so much as chickenpox. Because Zika hasn't been studied very much, so even though we know that it has existed for 70 years... We really haven't spent much time looking at long-term effects on people that have been diagnosed with it. Mm. You know, some people that have Ebola have chronic issues with it. Uh, many of them had issues with their um, eyesight. Many of them have issues with their hearing. So there are post-viral syndromes yeah. that can occur, and we will never, well, we'll know, maybe not in my lifetime, but we'll know about whether there is such a thing with Zika, yeah, you know, in over the course of time. Because that could be a real problem, because if you have a disease that looks pretty benign to everybody except pregnant females, and everybody seems to recover from it, or as you said, 60, 70, 80% of people have it, like West Nile, don't even know they without have it. Symptoms, without right. symptoms. Without symptoms, could still have the chronic recurrent symptoms, and we may not even recognize those when they first start popping up. That's... That's a possibility too. That's the the funny thing is that for for pregnant ladies, the most dangerous thing is if they get Zika without knowing they had it, without any symptoms, because then they'll only find out that their baby has been has been affected, and in in some cases, confirmed Zika cases uh, in pregnant women have 
Some studies have shown a 29% chance that some abnormality will occur. So if you don't know that you have it, you don't know to do any special testing or mm. more frequent ultrasounds, let's say, than the average person. And, and that's why they're telling women that have been to these areas to not have children for two years? Yes, a state policy, and, and this is not something you, I think it's almost unprecedented. You know, China has that one-child policy. Yeah. But places like Nicaragua and and other areas that are in, in feel endangered by the the virus actually have mandated that women should not get pregnant for at least two years. In Jamaica, they suggest one year. So I mean, there are a number of different places that are asking the the women their women not to become pregnant. That is a pretty draconian. It is. Statement. I it mean, is. I don't, they don't put them in jail. I'm sure if they do. But, yeah, but they're you know. basically saying you're not supposed to do this because it's a legitimate. Like, so, you know me, I'm, I'm not big on the state at all I'm in any sure. way, not even a tiny bit. But there are certain things that I see when a state does them, I, I understand why. I, I see plenty of abuse, but yet then there's other types. So, like, if you did have an epidemic in the United States of, let's say, a deadly flu, mm -hmm. right? They're going to declare martial law. They're going to lock down areas, and people are going to flip out in the liberty movement. And all. But in that case, it is literally the only thing you can do. It is the only way to slow down the spread is to stop people from intermingling until the disease plays out. So there's times when even I go, yeah, I get it. So let me ask you a question. Do you think that it would be wise to forbid Americans to travel to Rio de Janeiro this summer For the Olympics. See, I don't know. I, I, that's a tough one because we're not talking about something that has people dropping over dead left mm -hmm. and right. I think if you if you went down there fully informed and you were female, you're making a decision, then I'm not going to have a baby for the next two years, right? Or, or at least something like that. We I don't know that we can test for this yet to determine whether or not you've, you've been exposed. Like so, You can test for it, but it is a test that's available in a state lab here and there, okay. and the NIH, and yeah. the CDC hospitals. Yeah, so that, I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, if it was a bowl, I'd say absolutely. Like, mm -hmm. you, if, if we had a bowl in Brazil right now, and they were planning on doing the, the, the Olympic Games anyway, I'd be like, no, because that freaking kills, kills you dead, right? Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. Like, untreated, I think the death rate from Ebola is over 90%, right? So well, it's, it wound up being 50%, but only after, it started off at 90%, only okay. after we started paying attention to it, okay. did it drop, but even then it dropped just to 50%, still yeah. killed half the people, and it killed an inordinate amount but of those were healthcare I'm workers. saying untreated. Like, if you're not treated, isn't the death oh, rate... Oh, you're not treated... You're done, <laughs> yeah. right? I yeah. mean, it's that lethal, so when I see something like that, I'm, that makes a lot more sense to me to be that draconian I, i don't know that's a tough one because that you're telling right now what you're telling people that spent the last 20 years of their life in preparation you're not going to get to compete in the olympic games which is the biggest thing ever period mm -hmm. for those athletes now saying these are things you're going to have to accept if you do this i think that's maybe a little bit different they even i'll tell you this much that uh, a couple of days ago i saw an article in the in uh, online where one of the the Brazil's national soccer team's big stars actually said don't come well there'd be a reason for him to say <laughs> yeah, that right <laughs> i mean i don't know if you remember the 84 olympics when russia boycotted yes, we had I remember. Right in la we did really good that year <laughs> we won i mean like i think russia didn't come china didn't come or china came 
Yes, we, China we, came. Right, but like a whole bunch of like the Eastern Bloc countries did right, not would come. Not come yeah. We won so many medals. I know. Right, yeah. it was so good for us. Yeah, I know. That, you it was know, awesome. Yeah. So, oh, so it might help Brazil. Then. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, good point. Good point. So that's what I'm saying. If I were if I were playing <laughs> the Brazil soccer mm. and I could like eliminate some of my my toughest competition for the medal rounds by saying, yeah, yeah, it's not safe, don't come. I, I might do that. Now, I have a question. Why do they call it the Summer Olympics when it's winter in Brazil? I don't know. <laughs> I July, don't have a good answer for July that. July and August is the coldest months of the year in Brazil. Of course, but it's that's not the That's when I would go to Brazil. <laughs> we have to call it Winter Olympics there's an 2.0. Interesting, there's an interesting thing there that may be either a higher or a lower season for mosquitoes. I'm thinking it actually might be a higher season for mosquitoes in Brazil because it's probably... No, you know what? If, 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 the, if the climate of Brazil is anything similar to, like, Panama and what have you, the winter is the dry season. So it may actually be a safer time if there is such a thing to be there. I just It's just my impression that anything that's on the equator, of course, not all yeah. the countries on the equator, but anything that's on the equator most likely is not going to have that much temperature range difference throughout the year, right? Isn't yeah, but I'm not talking point? about temperature. I'm talking about no, precipitation. You, yeah. Precipitation well, because... That's true. Well, some... Some countries on the equator have monsoons, yeah, and I don't, I don't just don't know if that happens in Brazil. Because like, so I lived in Panama and Honduras for years, and it, what would happen is it would rain every day, every single day, every single day <laughs> for nine months out of the year, mm -hmm. and then December, January, and February, it just stopped. And by March, like it was fire danger. And then April, the rains came back. So maybe flipped over to the other side. That's mm -hmm. their winter. They may be in the dry season. You know, I don't know. One last thing I'd like to say about, about this is that Brazil has undergone its greatest military mobilization in the history of its country, and it's to fight a mosquito. Huh. Huh. <laughs> they, they have to use all of their soldiery so to, to fight mosquitoes. To do mosquito control, spraying, things like that. So it is some, it is an unusual disease in a, in a few ways. You know, hopefully it won't be a big issue. I believe, I, well, I believe that there'll be some locally transmitted cases uh, in Texas and Florida, and fun, strangely, I believe Washington and New York City, because uh, I think there are good quantities of those mosquitoes there. But I just don't think that we're going to have a lot of travel there too. Yes, right? that's, yes, that's, that's true. That's... But I don't think we're going to have community-wide issues, or really can call it a true epidemic. But um, it's something that you should consider. Mosquito repellents, maybe maybe long sleeves and long pants might be a good idea. And unless you really and I and I say this for men too, you know, if you are in a relationship with a woman, then maybe you shouldn't travel to Central and South America unless you need to. It is sexually transmitted. That, okay. that part's proven, okay. and it lasts. And it lasts in your blood only a, only a week or so, but the Zika virus lasts in your semen for months. <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. And I, I, you know what gets me is I've always said I've been doing this show mine now for like eight years plus, and I've always said from the very beginning to prepare for the disasters that are most likely to happen to you, and those are things like losing a job, getting in a wreck and being injured, tornadoes, local storms, flooding, but the big disaster that we will deal with sooner or later, maybe not in our lifetimes, but sooner or later, will be a deadly global pandemic. Like that, sooner or later, there's just the math 
the, the viruses need one good day to mutate the right way, and we're going to deal with this sooner or later. And that's why you have to be prepared for epidemics. Medical preparedness means be prepared for traumatic injuries due to tornadoes and stuff, but it also means be prepared for epidemics. I mean, I'll grant your listeners that this year it's unlikely that they're going to be affected by a major disaster, but you know what? Over the course of your lifetime, or the over the course of your children's lifetimes, maybe not so small a chance that you're going to be affected. So it's time to instill a culture of preparedness, general preparedness certainly, but consider medical preparedness as part of a plan to succeed even if everything else fails. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the other thing is the overlap. So there, if you're worried about a financial collapse, if you have a, a global pandemic, you're going to have a financial collapse. Conversely, If we do have a global financial collapse, mm. you're going to have epidemics and pandemics as a result because of the breakdown of society. So, like, those things go hand in hand. If you had uh, people are worried about the EMP threat, I'm not really because I understand physics and electronics and stuff like that. But let's say you did have a global grid shutdown or a U.S. grid shutdown, then you're going to deal with pandemics and epidemics and a financial collapse. Like, so the concept is always being prepared to deal without systems of support mm. no matter what. Because if you do that, then you're prepared for anything, mm -hmm. right? I know it's kind of hokey to quote the Boy Scouts with be prepared, but it used to be. But I don't think it is anymore because America yeah. is not freaking prepared for, I don't know. I don't think America's prepared for McDonald's to run out of freaking French fries. Absolutely. I think uh, we're like two weeks away from cannibalism, you know, <laughs> at any well, the one time. Did, the guy did call 911 because McDonald's was out of McNuggets. Yeah, right. right. So, I mean, I was saying the French fry thing would be facetious, but then right. I remembered that and said this actually, to some people, is I know. cataclysm. It's apocalypse. Dogs and cats are having puppy well, kids. I think that's, that's excessive. I wouldn't do that unless they ran out of sweet and sour sauce. No. <laughs> uh, All right. Now, I have to ask you a question because yeah. our listeners... Our, our, This is a twofer. All three of them, all three <laughs> of our listeners would like to know what's been happening with you. There are a bunch of ducks here, and why? First off, I want everybody. I want to point everybody to the survival podcast, Duck Chronicles, and I want you to tell us a little bit about Duck yeah. Chronicles and why ducks and why not ostriches. No, uh, okay. <laughs> no okay. So honestly, the best place to learn about the duck side of what we're doing is our farm website, which is Nine Mile Dot Farm. Um, but if you go to the Survival Podcast, you can find all the stuff that we do. If you go to duckchronicles.com, you can see all of the duck chronicles that we've done over a couple of years of, of bringing up our duck flocks. The ducks that are on our farm are here because our farm wasn't a farm. It was this desolate, brown piece of land on this rock outcropping that just sucked in north central Texas. It was like literally... Land-wise, the worst property I could have bought. I bought it because of the infrastructure, the house, the size of the land, being unincorporated, being able to do whatever I want. We started out with chickens, and they destroyed everything, so we got rid of them. We brought ducks in, and they've restored the land. So we're running about 150 ducks right now. Uh, my wife has a side business selling the eggs. We sell those for $8 a dozen. It's not our main income stream, but it definitely is an income stream. I just want to tell everybody that these guys have these baskets that you, if you are, if you play golf, they have, that's where they put the range balls, and we filled up a couple of them. Yeah, <laughs> big big buckets, just walking around the place today. They these ducks lay eggs all over, and, and you know we've been able. This isn't very much a survival topic, except developing 
income streams beyond your job or your main business is very much a preparedness topic. And we've been able to do that by we have several restaurants that are, are featuring our eggs on their menu and things like that. But the ducks are really a property management tool. So I have three acres. Uh, I can either weed it, deal with insects on it, uh, mow it, and do that many times a year. We can mow a few times a year when it gets really high and let the ducks do all the rest of the work. So they're a property management tool. Uh, and then people just like them. And they're also a preparedness component to us because there's a lot of drakes out there, and I don't really need those drakes. So if we mm -hmm. ended up in a food shortfall, there's you know a lot of meat on the hoof out there, so to speak, right now. And it doesn't require any means of storage while it's alive. So we, so unlike a cow, let's say you kept cow a, a couple cattle and you said, well, if things go wrong, we'll kill one of the cows. Okay, now you've killed a cow. Mm -hmm. Now you have 700 pounds of meat. You've got to do something with that 700 pounds of meat. So unless you really like biltong and jerky, right? right. You got to pro and that's a lot of meat to process. Where we can go out and kill a duck, and that duck can give us three meals. We can have an initial meal just from a protein source, taking breast colors and things like that. Then we can chop up little pieces of it and make a casserole or enchiladas or something like that. And then we can take the frame and we can make a soup. Right. So it's 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 it, it, it and that's all from one bird, one of the larger drakes. So we, we have that kind of a sustainability thing going on here. We have a lot of stuff on the farm. You know, my folks are pretty familiar with it, but your folks may really want to get over and take a look at what we're doing. But it's only a piece of what we do. Um, our whole philosophy here is helping you live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. So we have a preparedness mindset that evolves around what I call probability of disaster versus impact scale. So what I mean by that is we kind of touched on it as we were chatting about epidemics is a global pandemic would be a huge impact scale, but a very low probability that tomorrow or next week or next year you individually are going to be sick and dying because of a global pandemic. So that is like we're working to get prepared for that, but what we're going to start out with is are you prepared if your spouse is on the way to work today, gets hit in a car, and ends up paralyzed? That is a disaster. That is a, an epic disaster epic for the first. And that happens to somebody every yeah. single day. Or if we have a tornadic storm that rips the roof off of our house. Like, one of the things, I, and I've been doing this a long time, and I just learned this. If you have a tornado hit your home, get this. The insurance company will generally, unless it's very superficial damage, consider it a total loss. Once they've done that, they will tell you that since it's a total loss and they're paying for everything, You can't go get your stuff out of your own house. Right. There was a lady in Colorado I just featured who had wedding photos in her house, and the insurance company said she couldn't go get them. Wow. I, I can tell you that during Hurricane Andrew, where uh, I helped out with uh, some, of the medical, uh, some of the medical assistance, that you couldn't enter some of the neighborhood, some of the National Guard. Yeah. They had, they had National Guard posted at the entrances of some of these places. And I get preventing looting, but I'm talking about the point where homeowners are, you know, supposed to be allowed back in to get their own stuff. So, like, one of the things you learn there, then, is if you do have a tornado and you are going to say, okay, we can't stay here tonight, we need to go get a hotel room or something, we need to call our insurance company, get all of the critical stuff that you can take with you before you leave. We've right. also learned with, you know, fire preparedness. We had an interview with a guy on several years ago. He had a fire. It, the house was pretty much a total loss, but there were some things in the house that were recoverable. The insurance company sent contractors out to board the windows up and all right. while they were gone. They, you know, gave them money. I mean, the insurance company did everything it was supposed to do. The contractors that were sent to board up the house 
in this man's lowest point after losing his house, stole things out of the house. <laughs> they, he had a washer and dryer that was still usable. Uh -huh. They stole a the washer stole and dryer. Water. They stole all types of things when he went back and cataloged an inventory because it was mostly smoke damage. So while the house was shot, there was a lot of stuff in it that if it wasn't a furniture piece or something, could have been recovered. And they stole a few of the things that he had left. The people sent to board up his house. So his advice was, for instance, if you have a disaster like this and they send people to do that, even though you're distraught, even though you just want to go take your family somewhere and get a shower or whatever, you stay there till the last board goes up and you make sure nothing leaves. And to me, like that is one of the lowest things that a person could do. And I mean, so that's the kind of thing we teach people about. And it all the happens, time. but it happens every day. Look at the riots in Ferguson and riots in uh, Baltimore. Yeah. After all this brouhaha with the uh, the the police and and uh, the residents, uh, there was lo widespread looting just yep. essentially for fun. It, 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 amazingly, though, when they get to the neighborhoods where people are armed, that all stops. Right, even in yes. the, the Rodney King riots yeah. back, you know, what is it, fifteen, twenty years yeah. ago, almost now, when when they got to where the Korean like dry cleaners were and all, the Koreans went up on their roofs mm -hmm. with AKs. Yeah. That was the end of that stuff. So, I mean, yeah. that's another thing we don't we don't talk about like the doomsday prepper stuff here at all. But being armed and being prepared to defend yourself, and then right back into that, if you have riots, you have people throwing stuff around, you're gonna have people with lacerations, cuts, whatever. Then you got to get back into medical preparedness, mm -hmm. like. These things overlap over and over and over again. I don't think people realize because what happens is people get what I call, they become type cap, type cast preppers, right? So the person, the, think about the psychology of when you decided everything wasn't just special. It was probably something that did it for you. As a doctor, it was probably something to do with medical. But, yes. but a lot of people, you know, will come to it from that. But other people will one day... You know, here's something like the former comptroller of the country, uh, David Walker, who has no political ties to anybody because he served under multiple administrations, say, yeah, we have $150 trillion of unfunded liabilities. And that person goes, what's an unfunded liability? So they, they use Google. <laughs> they figure it out, and they're like, that's money that we're going to owe that we absolutely know we will not have. And so they freak out about economics. Or somebody sees a movie or reads a book about an EMP or a, a coronal mass ejection and realizes how, how at risk the electrical grid is. Whatever their avenue of entrance into preparedness is, they get focused on that, and they're worried about preparing for what you would need in that particular disaster. So they lose the commonality. What happens when there's a, a disaster in a foreign country and, and they ask us for aid? And they ask people to send supplies. What do they say? Food, Food medicine, water, the comfort basics. items. Right? The basics. That, those four things are always what people need. A way, a way to, prevent, to provide shelter, to, to, to cure illnesses. More people died in Haiti after the earthquake of freaking diarrhea than anything else. Right? And, and most of the people that died of Ebola yeah. died because they couldn't get IV fluids. That they ran out of IV fluids early and... They died of simple dehydration because they were having hemorrhagic diarrhea. The, only a small percentage of the Ebola patients died because they bled to death internally or, or because they spontaneously... And just to be clear, we're talking about people that were getting help. Yes. Right? Those like, people, if you're not getting help, you're done. Right. You're done with that. But the truth of the matter is, is that simple things, you know, just some salt, you know, sodium chloride, you know, IV would have saved a lot of these folks. Yeah, especially in the early going when they didn't have uh, the materiel.
Well, that's all the time we have for today, but it's not the end of the interview. We still have a little bit more with Jack, and we will put it up next week, and I know that you're going to enjoy it. Hey, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show. Go to our YouTube uh, channel, Dr. Bones Nurse Amy. Go ahead and hit up, of course, Jack's site at survivalpodcast.com. That's Braylon, our good friend Braylon. (laughs) Say hello. Hello. Okay. And, And we will see you next week for the beautiful Nurse Amy. I'm Joe Alton, MD, Dr. Bones, and I'm wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hang in there. See you next week. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. To contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.
Are you worried about how dangerous the world has become? In these days of terrorist attacks, natural disasters, or even a future collapse, you need to be medically prepared to keep your family safe. I'm Amy Alton, ARNP of store.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find an entire line of uniquely designed medical kits and supplies for when help is not on the way. For everything from individual first aid kits to the ultimate family bag, go to store.doomandbloom.net today. You'll be glad you did. 